So the intro is actually being recorded after the podcast is recorded. Uh, it's quarter after four. Eric chasing the fan. You know, on Wednesdays we try to get a community guest on, and uh, this is Russ Rising. He was suggested you might have heard when Mary Billu from the Blade, the food editor, um, hopped on, and her and I had a, a great connection, and she told me that I've got to reach out to Russ. Um, Russ is a, a Beatles savant, and uh, she said Russ can tell some stories. And I, as you'll hear me tell Russ, up to like 10 days or so ago when I was trying to dig in and think about what, uh, what we could talk about with, with Russ, I'm like, Mary, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. Like, my dad was the Beatles guy. I, I respect the Beatles, but I don't know the music or the history. Um, she's like, just get him talking. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. If you love live music, if you have a diverse palette of music going back decades, which, as you'll hear me say, it's much easier to do now because of commercials and marketing and access of streaming. There's just a lot more songs from yesteryear now than there has ever been at any other time before. So I hope if you're a music fan, you're really, really going to love today's podcast episode with Russell Rising. Okay, say something, please. Something, please. Oh, that's perfect. Great. Perfect. It's like the universe is conspiring to keep us apart. I'm glad we can get on the same page. Yeah, finally. There's nothing wrong with this. Uh, <laughs> I haven't used these earbuds in a long time. Now I feel like a real hipster. Um, don't anybody, don't let any, anybody judge you for anything because you are a true modern polymath. In fact, I just said the universe was conspiring against us, and I'm thinking, you know what? Russ has probably been to most of the known universe and speaks all the languages. <laughs> well, I've been to different regions of the universe, that's for sure. I like that. Not- not so much lately, but uh, I haven't given up. COVID is everywhere. Mars, Andromeda, it's everywhere. You can't stop this thing. I will let you know once I visit. <laughs> so I'm recording now, and we're just going to roll. And um, as as I, th- I told you over email, but now I can I can give some inflection to it. Um, Mary Billu, who is now... <sighs> She has risen to the top of my my media power rankings. I absolutely adore her. Yeah, she's um, absolutely she's fantastic. Uh, she's one of the great things of uh, uh, the UT experience. The UT experience? Oh yeah. What do you mean? Well, uh, when I was at UT, that's how she hooked up with me. Oh, that's right. She's with the blade, not UT. <laughs> <laughs> are, wait, are you thinking of uh, Christine, who uh, initially connected us? Yes, Christine Billow. Right. Yes, yeah. This is Mary Bill You, and I did the same thing because yeah, Christine used to work at the Blade. Their last names are similar. Mary had no idea about her, and I think Christine and I have followed each other on Twitter, and like, like this has been hard for you and I to connect. It'll work though. The last time I talked to uh, Mary. Uh, I told her about my family's weird Thanksgiving tradition, and she wants to do a story on it this coming Thanksgiving. Do you want to preview it right now? Well, uh, my kids live, my daughters live in Columbus, and my son lives here. Uh, So I am divorced. So on Thanksgiving, they have a lot of conflicts. They're all married, uh, and they have their mom in Columbus. So what we do is on the Sunday after Thanksgiving, we have what we call an ethnic Thanksgiving at my house. 
We choose an ethnicity, for instance, Hungarian. I made turkey paprikash, and they all bring a Hungarian side dish. And when we did Chinese, I did stir-fried turkey. So we choose a cuisine, and I substitute turkey for chicken. Uh, we've had turkey lasagna. We've had all. We've had turkey mole when it was Mexican Thanksgiving, and the kids absolutely love it. And so we get uh, my girlfriend's uh, son and daughter and their spouses and my three kids and their spouses and grandchildren. And we have a huge party uh, that, that, you know, it maintains a connection to Thanksgiving because of the turkey. But and pumpkin pie, of course. But that's as far as it goes. Everything else is uh, a different ethnic cuisine. And we've had a lot of fun. I love it. But I love that you went right into that because I I emailed Mary within the last week or so. I was like, I'm digging into Russ and I don't know like <laughs> what we can get into besides like I, I've been in pop radio my whole life and you're a Beatles expert and certainly we could find things. That, and Mary's like, don't worry about it. Just get him talking and he'll tell stories. And that was, <laughs> that was perfect. Good. I'm glad that we started off with a bang then. Oh, I, and then when you sent me emojis, I'm like, oh, we'll be fine. And and this is usually how I do uh, the, the podcast anyway. It's kind of like, you know, I, I'm the kind of person that could sit in a coffee shop and just talk to people or listen to people for hours. And I knew that we'd be able to do that. Not hours, maybe, go. but... Um, hey, I, I'm yours for the afternoon. Perfect. Perfect. So I don't even know where I want to start. I guess the Beatles stuff. So Mary had done something with you um, about the Beatles and, and just how, where does that passion come from? Um, how much do you know about them? Would you, would you dominate Beatles Jeopardy categories? Oh yeah. Uh, here's how it got started. I grew up actually in Oak Harbor and it wasn't a great school system until the nuclear power plant went in, which I helped build. So I made a lot of money for college in a project that ended up helping Oak Harbor. But uh, I had two great English teachers, uh, Carrie uh, Oakley and Helen Grummel. But before that, it was not a town that really fostered intellectual uh, discussions. However, then Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band came out, and it was the first record album ever to include the lyrics to all the songs. Not many people realize that. Okay. And so I saw this, and all of a sudden, I could understand what people were saying. Because, you know, you could never understand what Bob Dylan was singing about, or the Rolling Stones a lot of the time. Uh, But when uh, I started reading the lyrics to Sgt. Pepper's, all of a sudden I got excited about poetry. Okay. And uh, that became a lifelong passion. I became an English professor. But about 15 years ago, I shifted my focus into popular culture. And uh, since then, I've published a book on the Beatles album Revolver, Pink Floyd's album Dark Side of the Moon, and the Rolling Stones album Beggar's Banquet. I've also published quite a few essays on the Beatles and on psychedelic culture in general. Most of my stuff focuses on psychedelia, uh, and I can interact with the lyrics. I don't have any musical training, and so when I put together book projects, I work with people who have you know, expertise as musicologists, and, and they contribute things that are much more technical. I can analyze the lyrics and the poetry and put them into different uh, historical and cultural contexts. Uh, I've 
in a sense, I've grown up with with music. I've always been considering putting together a podcast called A Life in Rock and Roll, which would sort of like chart my entire life in terms of the music I was listening to. Uh, I was born in 1952, so I caught the tail end of doo-wop and, you know, uh, all kinds of just pure vocal groups. Uh, and I can chart almost every phase of my life, uh, even elementary school, uh, in accordance with the music I was uh, passionate about at the time. Uh, that'll probably never come to anything, but I did recently just find a spectacular podcast called A History of Rock Music in 500 Songs by, and, a, by a British guy named Andrew Hickey. Okay. He doesn't, he doesn't have the greatest delivery, <laughs> but he goes into such amazing detail about all the songs he sees starting in the 30s and 40s leading up to rock and roll. Uh, it's one of the most entertaining and educational things I've ever listened to. He has great samples. I just listened to uh, the episode last night on the song uh, Susie Q, which was recorded by many, many artists before Creedence Clearwater Revival recorded it. Uh, and, uh, the, you know, his stories about the origins of the song uh, and all the different people who have recorded it, what the techniques were, what the uh, infighting was about who actually wrote the song and who got royalties from it or got ripped off from royalties. So uh, there's a lot of really great stuff going on with popular music now, and I'm just happy to be uh, part of the conversation. Fifth, you said 15 years ago, um, you, you got into to more like pop culture, did you call it? Yeah, uh, it was it was really a remarkable uh, chain of events. I was invited to give a talk at an American literature conference in Washington, D.C. And it was a panel on Moby Dick with uh, with two other fairly noteworthy American literature critics. After I gave the talk, this guy came running up from the back of the room and said, I really loved that. If I pay you. Will you give that same talk in Hawaii this January? Yes, I will. <laughs> yeah, it took me less than a fraction of a second to answer. <laughs> so that evening, I hooked up with an old graduate student of mine from when I taught at University of Oklahoma, and we went out and got pretty well soused at uh, one of the blues bars in Baltimore. On the table of that bar was an entry form to what was called the Bass Ale World Brew Pub Exp Expedition. It was a contest that I won, and I got to go around the world with Bass Ale. Uh, so I got a, I, I won a trip to Australia and Hong Kong and Japan, all because I wrote, you know, what they called an essay of 250 words. Uh, and I won the contest. But when I got to Hawaii that January, uh, I was introduced to a Japanese scholar, and I spoke enough Japanese at the time that he and I could touch bases in Japanese, and he invited me to a conference in Japan that was sponsored by the International Association of Popular Music, EASPM. Okay. Now, this is before I started doing any work on popular music. I was still mostly a literature scholar. My first two books were, you know, really books on literary criticism in American literature. 
So I put together a paper on my favorite Japanese novelist and the way that he uses references to rock and roll to chart Japan's cultural history from about the end of World War II up to the present. When I was there, I met lots of music scholars, and I thought, what a wonderful group of people. Uh, I was also, I had been awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to teach in Finland the next winter, and there were some Finnish scholars there, uh, and uh, we met, and they were music scholars, and so I was introduced to the international world of popular music studies. When I got to Finland, this is another fortunate thing, uh, I was asked to help a small group of people who were working on the Beatles and who wanted to take their show on the road, so they wanted somebody to help them polish up the English language delivery of their papers on the Beatles. So I went in, I sat there and listened, and it was really wonderful. And then a couple years after that, they had a conference in Finland called Beatles 2000. It was the first ever international Beatles conference. So they invited me to, to come and give a talk. So I put together three of my best friends, and we put a panel together on the Beatles album Revolver, which has always been my favorite uh, Beatles album. Once again, we got there. I knew Finland. I had been there in uh, the, you know, the middle of January when it was only light for about four hours a day. And this was in the middle of June where it was only barely dark four hours a day. So we had a really good time. But after my friends and I gave our papers, a guy came running up and said, geez, I really love that. Why don't you turn it into a book? Well, here I was surrounded by the world's preeminent Beatles scholars. And uh, before the conference was over, I had lined up about 15 people, each to contribute essays on Revolver. And it became a book published uh, in England, and it won the award for the best research on rock and roll that year from uh, a recording industry association. That was all I needed. I realized that I could do this stuff, and uh, I've been devoting my scholarly life primarily to rock and roll and psychedelia uh, ever since then. So it was all a weird series of events that sort of cascaded out of my giving a talk in Baltimore on Moby Dick. It's kind of it's kind of Indiana Jones like I can see you like dotting the map while the the plane is flying over it from DC to Hawaii to Japan to <laughs> Finland. It, it Mary's right, you can tell a story. I'm <laughs> I'm captivated. And for the first time ever, I'm going to tell my dad to listen to this podcast. My dad is, so when when I was growing up as a kid, you know, one of two things, and maybe maybe this is an expertise of yours, you either rebel against what your parents listen to, or you listen to what they like. And uh, my mom liked pop music, so we listened to the Top 40 Station. My dad liked, uh, at that point, he was listening to sports talk radio, so I listened to that. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. I did, as I, I got a little bit older, I found that my dad was a mega Beatles fan. Of course. And um, the Simon and Garfunkel things, I guess in the 70s or so. Uh -huh. So I'm going to make sure if, oh God, if, techno if the technology gods have any grace in their hearts, I'll be able to connect my dad to this podcast. Well, how will I find this podcast? Oh, uh, that that's very easy. One, I'll give you the link. Okay, two, good. Two, even easier, if you search my name, Eric Chase, uh -huh. on any podcast platform, um, I thank the search engine gods, I'll, I'll pop up. Okay, great. 
great. Uh, um, if, if I may ask you another question. Well, let, let me inter, interject something. Sure. Uh, I think I'm 68, okay? My children are in their 30s. And I think mine is the first generation in which our children grow up loving the same music we loved. I rebelled against my parents, although uh, I did have a really good influence on my mom. She listened to The Drifters and Hank Williams. So I was raised with uh, R&B and uh, really good authentic country music. But other than that, you know, my parents thought rock and roll was, you know, wrong and no good and just plain noise. But my kids and I share lots of similar music tastes. My son and I go to concerts together all the time. And my daughters and son and I have gone to many concerts as well when they were still uh, living around here. So I, I think the coherence of the musical culture since about 1965 through the present is really a continuum rather than one in which there have been, you know, major breaks and ruptures. I have a, a million questions with all this is why I knew we'd be we, we just have a conversation. Um, I have been fascinated. And as with most things, you can either thank or blame the Internet. I, th- <laughs> I thank the Internet and, and marketing. When I was growing up uh, in the 80s and 90s, I had a very narrow scope of, of music. I grew up in Philadelphia and quite honestly, I didn't know that songs had guitars in them until I moved to Detroit. Right. Um, and I, right. I got exposed to, wow, Prince has more than 1999. Uh, and that's, that's where I had like my musical uh, awakening. But in the last like 20 years, thanks to again, the internet and marketing, yep. it seems like younger people have such wider access to genres and decades of music that yep. they never yep. would have opened themselves up to before. That's right. Well, also, uh, when the, you know, various streaming services uh, started off, you know, including ones that were illegal for a long time. Yep. uh, People were introduced and could, you know, luxuriate in music that they never would have heard otherwise. Yep. Also, though, Internet radio uh, is one of the big things. Uh, I listen to a station out of Seattle, which has always been the cutting edge with uh, with popular music. Uh, and I can listen to, you know, radio stations from all over the world and uh, and hear great stuff. But none of it will ever be as good as when I was growing up in this area, CKLW. Yep, I'm familiar with it. There's. Have you seen the documentary about it? I have not because as I, I'm not a radio historian wonk, but I, yeah. I, I'm familiar with the call letters only because I worked in Detroit for a long, long time. And that was like a, a powerhouse station. It was, it was that and WJR, right? Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, though, uh, CKLW was it was like the greatest music all over the map, all on one radio station. I mean, you would hear all the Motown stuff, of course. You would hear, you know, early punk rock like the Stooges or the MC5. You would hear the British Invasion. You would hear the Monkees and the, you know, the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. You would hear. You know, the doors followed by Simon and Garfunkel, followed by uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, followed by, you know, some schlock pop music. But it was nonstop, fabulous music. Everybody who's grown up in this area has basically the same childhood memories. CKLW, great music, and the disc jockeys did the news in a really sort of like savage parody fashion. They would, you know, sort of like really jazz up the news. So 
uh, something horrible would come across as funny. And, you know, ordinary things, they would act as though they were world-changing events. So even when the news came on, uh, CKLW was a fantastic experience, especially for somebody growing up in a small farm town like me. In in a way, uh, that's one of the things that I try to do. Um, I mean, pe- people are, are sensitive and more aware now, and you've got to be careful um, and tactful with how you approach things. But that's what I try to do. Um, I'm not really for, when I'm when I, on my show, it's not all the gossip stuff and entertainment, you know, I want mm-hmm. people to know what's going on. And if I can put a positive or maybe funny spin on it, I endeavor to do that because I, I can laugh at almost anything. That's just my, my genial attitude. Try to, it could be, uh, obviously there's been a lot of negative in the world and I would never make any joke about something so awful, but right, I try right. to put some positive spins on things. Right. Well, that, that's, uh, you know, we, that's a choice we make. Uh, you know, it's a, it's just a choice. I always said to my kids when they were going, I said, listen, guys, it's more fun to be friendly. Uh, you get a lot more out of life. You meet a lot more interesting people. And, uh, you know, you can, you know, you know, sort of like uh, cave into despair or depression, or you can fight against it and try to find uh, interesting, novel, and sometimes exciting ways of thinking about experiences. Let me ask you the one question that when uh, Mary told me about you and I, I looked into your your background, um, I really wanted your perspective of what you think of, first I'll ask, what do you think of pop music today and at least in the 21st century um, and c- compare and contrast to what you have followed for most of your life? And I don't think you're going to say it was better. We all, I think... We all say, you know, music was better back in my day. As you get older, you you learn that you just say that for a variety of reasons. People now who dismiss older music will grow up and like what they grew up listening to. So what are your thoughts on 21st century pop music? Well, you know, part of the problem I have is I don't know where to find it. That's why CKLW was so important, because anything that was out there was on that one radio station. Radio stations now are so specialized mm-hmm. that unless you know a station that plays primarily pop music, you don't hear it. Uh, but I still get turned on to music from my kids and friends. And when I find somebody new, uh, it's not always pop music, but I like Beyonce. Okay. I like, I love, I love the Dixie chicks. Now okay. they're just called the chicks. Right. Uh, I love a lot of, uh, you know, the major acts these days, you know, starting, you know, I'm going to date myself here, but Oasis, Seagar Raz, Radiohead, you know, that's not really poppy, but uh, uh, I think there's some of the greatest music ever made still coming out. Uh, in fact, uh, just five or six years ago, uh, my son and my gal and uh, a friend of my son's went to Cleveland to see Seagar Raz, which is an Icelandic band. Uh, and they had with them, because their their main keyboard and synthesizer player quit the band. So they brought with them a string quartet and a brass quartet. And it was at a, a venue in Cleveland that was sort of open to the elements. We were all covered, but it was raining. And in between songs, you would hear the rain. And it was the most powerful, emotional, and aesthetic concert I have ever been to. And I've been to all of them. I mean, I saw Pink Floyd in 71, 73, 75, and 77. I saw The Who and Led Zeppelin in 1970. I saw Sly and the Family Stone in 1970. 
that's when I started going to concerts. Uh, but uh, concert technology, sound systems, and a lot of times the musical acts just keep getting better. Yeah, it's so much more than just a musical experience now. You've oh, yeah. got it, and with what you're being charged for concert tickets these days, you damn well better get more than music at hey, these don't shows. Don't forget the convenience charge, which is. <laughs> <laughs> So the ticket's $212. Why am I paying $237? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, my first concert was uh, in the summer of 1970. It was the James Gang, James Taylor, right after Sweet Baby James came out, and The Who. And it was $5 at Cleveland Public Hall. Who have you seen most? What act? Uh, I've seen Pink Floyd and Roger Waters, to, you know, different acts about seven times. I've seen Jethro Tull four or five times i've seen radiohead four times i've seen oh uh uh yes uh, a great english group called the straubs i've seen quite a few times uh i've seen dylan quite a few times Joni mitchell but uh, the most the most times i've seen people were pink floyd uh and uh, Jethro Tull, I think. Who've uh, you who've you missed? Early to mid seventies. Who've you missed out on? Like schedules just didn't work out. Couldn't get well, tickets. My parents wouldn't. I had tickets to go see the Rolling Stones in nineteen sixty nine in Detroit, but they were on Ed Sullivan the night before, and my parents were so shocked they refused to let me go to to Bowling Green to pick up a buddy. We were going to hitchhike up. Mm. So I missed the Stones. Uh, Oh, I'm trying to think if I missed anybody else I really want. I never saw the Beatles. Uh, and I never saw James Brown in person. Okay. Other than that, I, I've seen pretty much everybody I've ever wanted to see, oftentimes, uh, often numerous times. For some reason, you um, 2 keeps popping into my head to, to ask you about them because they're such a... Uh, a timeless act these days and they'll crank yep. out a, a, even a pop hit every now and then or something that'll be on a commercial. And they've been around for decades and I know they're also great on tour. Have you been to any of their shows or your thoughts on them? Uh, I've never seen, Oh, the other person I, I never got to see uh, was Jimi Hendrix. Okay. My parents were really sort of racist. <laughs> sort of we racist. Did, we, we didn't get the Toledo blade. So I didn't know that he played in Toledo twice. Uh, once at the sports arena and once at the university. So that was the act that I missed out more than anything else. But back to you, too. Uh, people are amazed. Uh, I put when I, My friends and I have a, a tradition. When we turn 50, we put together our 50 favorite songs onto a, a group of CDs and send them to each other. Uh, I think I had three U2 songs on mine, even though... I only like about five U2 songs. The other ones I just don't like at all. But the ones I like just send me through the roof. I like them so much. Uh, songs like uh, New Year's Day or Sunday Bloody Sunday, uh, Beautiful Day, Where the Streets Have No Name, Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. Uh, I've never seen them. It's one of those huge, huge you know, stadium shows that... I've sort of given up on because a lot of times people go and treat it like they're at a football game or something. They care more about getting beer and nachos yeah. than they do about listening to the music. And that's that's driven me crazy since I was a kid. What ha what locally 
and obviously you mentioned the sports arena already. I'll go regionally because it's not like we've got big venues here. Yeah. Regionally, and I'll even include like you know Cleveland and that. What's your favorite uh, and least favorite regional venues, and then national and global as well? Right. Well, I've been to. Uh, there is a place in since. Uh, wait, the, the place in Cincinnati. What was it called? Oh boy, I can't believe I've forgotten it. It was a small sort of jazz club where I saw John McLaughlin. Uh, Cleveland Public Hall, even though it had terrible sound, was the you know the places I saw my first concert. So that still has a special place. Uh, the Palace of Auburn Hills isn't bad. DTE Energy Center isn't bad. Uh, in Toledo now we have this small uh, the Huntington Arena, which is like a, a you know a tiny. Uh, hockey arena, you know, for a minor league hockey team. But they're building these big places now with paying much more attention to uh, acoustics. Uh, So, you know, places that used to be basically for car shows or hockey games, you know, were just echoey and boomy and you could barely hear what they were, what they were playing. Now you can actually get great sound at what is essentially a sports arena. The worst sound I ever had was at the Aragon Ballroom in Chicago, uh, I think 1980 or 81. I went to see The Clash. And if you know The Clash's song, London Calling, it's very distinctive. We didn't know if they had played it. Because <laughs> it was just a wall of sludge? It was, it was at best a wall of sludge. I turned <laughs> and said to my buddy, I said, Scott, do you think they're going to play London Calling? He says, I, I think they might have. Uh, but that's really, really terrible sound. Um, any other big national venues? Like, it, it sounds so cliche, and I'm sorry if I'm asking cliche questions, but I'm just that's fascinated. Right, not a problem. Like uh, Madison Square Garden or places in LA, uh, or anywhere else around the world that you've been to to enjoy a show? Uh, not really. Uh, I've seen most of my great shows here. I did see. A techno group called the Chemical Brothers. I know them, not oh, like yeah. personally, I, but yeah, like late late nineties. Yeah, when, I, yeah. I lost my hearing uh, <laughs> at, a chem- at a Chemicals Brothers show in Manchester, England. I think it was at a, a, a like a, a center named after a beer group, a, a beer brand. But the sound was so loud that my pants were rippling, uh, and I didn't think, you know, I didn't think I was going to need earplugs at a concert, but it was really, really awful. Actually, one of my favorite places, this is a very small venue, was uh, the Earl of Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. Uh, I'm just as much into folk music. In fact, I was much more of a of a Bob Dylan guy than I was a Beatles guy up until about the time uh, Rubber Soul and Revolver came out. But I saw many, many great uh, shows at the Earl of Old Town School of Folk Music. Uh, never a big act, but, you know, it'd be uh, acoustic uh, groups, sort of like uh, uh, the Ark up in Ann Arbor. Okay. Which is a fabulous place for for acoustic music. I, I guess I was about 20 or 21 years old. I had seen, I went to uh, work with the radio station. I, I got a lot of access. Um 
And nice. I saw the Backstreet Boys at the Palace of Auburn Hills. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And I remember trying to talk to my friend next to me. And it was just like lips were moving and you couldn't hear anything because of this. It wasn't even from the sound of, of the performance. It was the screaming. I can't imagine oh. the decibel level. But it, 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 had, it had to have been on the Richter scale. Um, and that's, <laughs> that's the loudest... I've ever been at a concert, and again, it wasn't the music. Not that the music was right. bad by any means, but just the screaming, the the pure hysteria right. of it all. Right. Well, I I knew quite a few people who had seen the Beatles, and of course, they enjoyed having seen the Beatles play, but they said you could never hear anything. How come? For the screaming? The screaming. It was, and that's and to, that's one of the main reasons why the Beatles stopped playing live because they couldn't even hear what they were doing. Right. Uh, I, I've been to the. Uh, I've seen some of the pop groups. There's a, a sort of half serious, half comedic band from Canada called the Bare Naked Ladies. I love them. They I are. I do too. I saw them, um, and and they were, were they were here two summers ago at the zoo, and uh-huh. I didn't. I somebody, I wanted. I was going to go. I was given tickets. But then I gave them away because somebody said I, I would really like to see them. I said, you have to see them because when I saw them in Lansing at uh, the Breslin Center around the time of the uh, the One Week album. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. It was the album with Pinch Me on it. Uh-huh, so like uh-huh. the second big pop album. Right. I fell in love because I, I went to it and I was like, again, at that point in time, still very much into rhythmic music and, and dance music, as I called sure. it then. But sure. I was slowly getting into these acts that were transitioning over. Third Eye Blind, Matchbox 20. Yep. And I was like, this is, a, this is a good show. People seem to be having a good time. And then they started rapping the real Slim Shady from Eminem <laughs> and I was like I was sold. They are such a great band. It's not like pyrotechnics or Lady Gaga over the top stuff. It's just their personality on stage. They were so much fun. I went because my my uh, children liked them. Uh I have uh, at the time I had a daughter who was still in high school and uh, twins 4 years younger than she was. And uh, we all went to see them in at the palace once. And uh, my twins were actually quite young. And so there were older kids around them, and they got my boy and girl twins dancing, and we had a great time. And then I secretly got my whole family tickets to go hear them on New Year's Eve at the Palace of Auburn Hills. And I told my son, I said, James, I'm getting you a very special gift for Christmas. I said, it's small enough to fit in your hand, meaning the ticket. Right. But it's big enough that it would it's larger than the block we live on. So I said it's both small and huge. And he said, Oh, it's not love, is it? <laughs> but uh, that's one of the greatest things he's ever said. But uh, we went and uh, they did, you know, all the songs we liked. Uh, uh, Brian Wilson, yep. I Can Be Your Yoko Ono. Uh, they did their parody of Canadian popular music where they, they riff on uh, uh, the, the theme song from Titanic and, and things like that. Uh, but they were great fun. Uh, the audience loved them. And uh, I became a bit of a convert myself, largely from seeing how much fun my kids had. Yeah, they were a great band. It's one that I always suggest people go see, even if you're not, even if you only know the song One Week or whatever oh, yeah. else. Um, let me, uh, one, one genre that you haven't, uh, haven't touched on. I told you it's, it's, it's in my background because of where I grew up. What about disco and, um, 
Yeah, we'll start with disco and then we'll transition to what evolved out of that, I guess, in the 80s. Yeah, disco was always anathema to me. Uh, I lived in Chicago when a famous shock jock named Steve Dahl had uh, disco demolition night at a Chicago At the White Sox, Sox game, yeah. yeah. At a White Sox game. <laughs> uh, and I, I just agreed with it. Uh, <laughs> before the BGs were disco, they had some interesting ballads on the radio. A song called I Started a Joke or the, the New York Mining Disaster of 1941. How Deep the, Is Your Love? Oh, no, no. That was more of a disco thing. This was really long before they be, they, they turned to disco. This was in like the mid-60s. Uh, they had a whole career before disco. Then, you know, mid-70s, all of a sudden, uh, they were lighting it up with a, a completely different brand of music that I think suited their voices properly. But it was just something that, uh, aside from having a couple fun nights at dance clubs where, you know, it was dance music, essentially. Um, right. I, I never paid attention because what I loved about music was was the lyrics, the complexity of the instrumentation, and the, 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 the timbre of the music, you know, just the overall tone of it. And disco didn't strike me as listenable in any of those three categories. I get it. Um, what about what came after that? Uh, it, like like new wave stuff or like like early to mid eighties dance things. Um, like Duran Duran and acts yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. The other two escape me at the moment, but uh, or uh, the Blue Monday group, uh, Bizarre Love Triangle, all those things. The Cult, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Joy Division did Blue Monday. No, Joy Division did do Blue Monday. Who did Blue Monday? New Order. There we go. Yeah, New Order. Yeah, that that was the the extension of Joy Division. After, Depeche Mode's the other one that was on the tip of my tongue. Depeche Mode, Flock of Seagulls. Yep. Uh, yep. Asia. I, <laughs> Asia. Yeah, they were. You know, they were all studio musicians that just sort of like were put together to make a band. Uh, I I think that was one of the high points of uh, of rock and roll from uh, the introduction of like the Police and Elvis Costello. Uh, new, you know, new wave more than punk. I, mm-hmm. I was, you know, there are certain punk things I really liked. Uh, the Gang of Four. Uh, actually, I saw them four times in concert in Chicago. They were sort of a, a, a political alternative to The Clash at the time. Uh, they were from Leeds, and of course, The Clash was from London. But uh, they gave spectacular concerts, and they ended up on a disco dance show called Dance Fever. I know it. Uh, was that the one that was shot in Philadelphia with Dick Clark? No, this was a guy That's named... That's Bandstand. Sorry. Yeah, this was a guy named Denny Terrio. Okay. And he had two unbelievably sexy women dancing with him. And to see a Gang of Four on that show, that was the last I really paid attention to Gang of Four. But that era... Uh, the, the cult was great. I thought the Smiths were great. Uh, Joy Division was, uh, you know, I think one of the great bands. There's some really strange political noise that you have to deal with if you like Joy Division songs. Uh, but uh, I really liked a lot of that music. Not as much the dance stuff, uh, but the dance stuff was intermixed with a lot of really serious uh, music by these other groups that we mentioned. One, the- I was in uh, graduate school. I went to undergrad from 71 through 75. 
then I, I won a year to study in, in uh, Taiwan and Japan. Then I went back and I got a master's in, in literature in 78. And then I went to a Northwestern University. So I was in Chicago from 78 to 83, which was a really, really good time to be in a big city. Uh, so, you know, I had access to, you know, all kinds of great music. But at the time, I was more uh, feeding my jazz habit than anything else. So uh, I got to see most of my jazz heroes there and uh, a lot of good folk music. Not as much rock and roll, but uh, it was still a really great five years. In the uh, in, in the 80s, as we kind of like matriculate through that decade here, um, rap, rap showed up. Um, your thoughts on on that and where it began in the '80s with the the Run DMCs um, and beyond, and, and where it kind of evolved to. Yeah, well, I've always been a, a huge fan of uh, of most of the rap music, uh, especially the hardcore acts. Really? Yeah, yeah. Like N- I, like NWA. Oh yeah. How come? Uh I liked the I liked the lyrics. Uh, I liked the sound, uh, and uh, there was just a lot about it that picked up on uh, the sort of like the political drift of a lot of stuff that was going on in uh, in the music when I was a kid. Uh, I loved reggae, uh, and uh, I've always been a fan of uh, of, of you know black music culture. In fact, uh, the association of the Adva- association for the advancement of creative musicians, the AACM in Chicago promoted what they called great black music. They didn't divide it up into R and B or Motown or jazz or, or rap. Uh, they were just really into, uh, the entire, uh, you know, history uh, of black music. Uh, but then, you know, uh, there were all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, the body count run DMC. I liked, uh, uh, I loved the, uh, not that, uh, Michael Jackson was rap, but, uh, sure. uh, I liked a lot of, uh, what he was doing in those years. But, uh, I think public enemy, yeah. uh, was, uh, was NWA and public enemy were my, my two favorite, uh, rap groups. I've, I've since liked it less and less because it's more and more songs like it's getting hot in here. So <laughs> take off all your clothes. Right. Uh, which I used to teach when I was teaching courses on poetry and teaching the uh, Carpe DM tradition, which was like, you know, basically let's not wait to have sex. Let's do it right now. Right. And so I would read like, you know, 17th century love poems uh, and then, contrast that with it's getting hot in here so take off all your clothes which was essentially the same message albeit delivered in a, a completely different style so that you know i never had the uh the objections to uh to rap music that a lot of people did a lot of people my age and a lot of uh uh you know although rap was i think the second great genre that brought together uh, white kids and and uh, kids of color. For, the first was like Elvis, rock and roll stuff. Well, no, the first was mostly Motown. I mean, okay. I, I had friends who who idolized Motown and hated stuff like the Who because they said it was just noise. Right. 
and I think rap had the power to, you know, to bring uh, all kinds of kids together and anything that can foster racial unity and racial cooperation, I'm all for. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I used to, you know, get teary when I would watch like a professional sporting event and saw, uh, you know, white men and black men embracing and uh, and celebrating together. Because when I was growing up, uh, that was really very, very rare, especially in a, in a Ohio farm town. Sure. And, uh, you know, the musical culture, I mean, it's almost a cliche, but musical culture was one of those uh, uh, areas of, of my life where that was really uh, prominent. When when did you move away from Oak Harbor? I left Oak Harbor to go to college in 1971. Okay. And then I went to Miami University for a a BA and an MA. Then I moved to Chicago. Then I moved to University of Oklahoma for two years. And then Marquette University in Milwaukee for nine years. And then I came back to Toledo. I was recruited to come to Toledo. Uh, and it was a great opportunity to get my children close to their grandparents. So uh, it's not a place that people dream of returning to. Right. But it's, it's worked out very, very nicely uh, for my, my children and me. I, I bring it up because um, we stay in our our cultural silos um, of where we grew up. And if you don't get the opportunity to move like you have and I have, you, you get stuck in those and, and some bad things can arise from them. We saw, oh, yeah. we unfortunately saw it over the last year and maybe more, but you, uh, you, you visualized or you helped me visualize a picture that I've, I've thought about from time to time. And I've been very fortunate to grow up in Philadelphia where a lot of people who I went to school with didn't look like me. And, right. and that, that's right. why I, I think I'm a pretty decent human being. And you talk about music where rap music, um, dance music, um, things, pop music. You go to a concert and you see lots of different faces. Yeah. You, you go yeah. to a rock show or a country show and it's all like just the same just like a slightly different shade of one person. And yeah. I'm not saying that those people are evil or anything like that. It's just what that attracts. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just not for me. Well, I would say that uh, a racist audience is evil. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say they were racist. I'm just no, saying no, they no. all look the yeah. same. Well, well, okay. But that comes along with certain baggage. Sure. I get it. Like, I don't oh. know if you saw the story today, the, uh, the country star, Morgan Wallen. Are you familiar? Did you see this in the news cycle today? I saw it on the BBC feed. He's, oh. he, uh, he got into some serious trouble with some racist language, right? Yeah. And, and, and we're all, we're all stunned at, at this. And in fact, oh. uh, our company Cumulus took all the songs off the radio. Good. Um, and Good for you guys. This this guy was like there was stuff back in the in the um, in October where he was supposed to be on SNL. He got caught partying in Alabama recklessly. They kicked him off. Good. So and again, I don't ever want to label a bunch of people a bunch of racists, but I completely agree with you that yeah, if uh, if a bunch of Nazis get together and listen to great music, nah, <laughs> not my thing. Yeah, I know the one of the greatest, actually the most exciting concert I ever saw was, uh, again, in 1970, it was uh, Sly and the Family Stone. Uh, I asked a girl who's basically a farm girl to go with me, and we had really good tickets, like 15th row center. Uh, I was in Cleveland Public Hall. Uh, it was about 9,500, uh, uh, you know, 
black kids and about 500 maybe white kids. We were 15th row center, and the opening act was one of the most white bread groups I've ever heard. It was called Every Mother's Son. They had one song that was like, come on down to my boat, baby. It was just like the schmaltziest white music. Uh, they didn't even turn the lights down for them. And then, uh, you know, they were done at like uh, eight. Sly and the Family Stone were supposed to come out. And they didn't come out till 1015 because Sly, the rumor was, was too smacked out on heroin to be able to get onto the stage. So they came out at 1045 and played the most exciting music I've ever heard. It was like the saxophone and the trumpets were on fire. And they did basically, you know, what people had seen them do at Woodstock. Uh, and it was absolutely thrilling. Great music, great audience. But there was an 11 o'clock curfew at Cleveland Public Hall. So at 11 o'clock, the concert just stopped and the lights came on. Well, people weren't very happy. Right. So basically, a riot broke out. People were throwing chairs. Uh, it was terrifying for, you know, for just a couple, uh, you know, farm kids, not farm kids, but, you know, white kids from rural Ohio. We got our way to the door. And when we got to the door, a cop grabbed me and said, hold on to your money and run. <laughs> uh. And the woman I was with fainted. Oh, my God. <laughs> and so the place was just literally going going berserk. Then we had to walk about a quarter mile through an underground parking garage where the riot was still going on. Uh, nothing happened. Uh, I had to fight a guy off from trying to steal my wallet. But uh, nothing really bad happened. Uh, it was the last time I saw the woman that I uh, had right. taken to the concert. But it went down for me as one of the all-time greatest concerts, which which actually came on the heels of, uh, I saw a one-of-a-kind Led Zeppelin concert just a, a couple weeks before that. Uh, it was supposed to go on at 8, but John Paul Jones's mother, their bass player's mother, died. And in order to accommodate him getting back to England, they moved the concert to 5 o'clock in the afternoon. My friends and I happened to be listening to the radio, and we found out, and we got there on time, but there are only about you know three or 4,000 people in a 10,000-person arena because people didn't hear about it. Right. Well, they came on, and they did all of their first two albums, Led Zeppelin one and two. Then they took a break, and John Paul Jones returned to England. Then the other three, the other three, John Bonham, Robert Plant, and Jimmy Page came out with acoustic instruments and did, they previewed, I think, three or four songs from Led Zeppelin three that hadn't been released yet. So I actually saw Led Zeppelin unplugged, which was That's a one-time awesome. one thing because after that, the rest of them returned to England for the funeral. Right. And they never uh, had to do anything like that again. So it was, it was my first concert summer, and uh, I ended up seeing some absolutely spectacular, uh, exciting, and unforgettable shows. My uh, my most memorable concert moment, um, 
again, I go with memorable kind of like how your your show that broke out in chaos and and people being berserk is, is memorable, maybe not best. Yeah. Um, I was working at a radio station in Detroit. I think this was 2000 or so. Uh-huh. And we had a, a station show at the Palace. And right. G- and Jay-Z was the headliner. Oh, and wow. This oh, was an wow. this was an awesome this was an awesome lineup. Like we had the big boy bands at the time. It was when Pink had had first had really broken out. It was a great lineup. But Jay Z was the headliner. Uh-huh. He uh, he he's easy to work with as anything. Hops up on stage, knew his call time, and it was him, a microphone, and his DJ. And this place was packed. There was like 18,000 people in there. You weren't going to wow. fit another soul in that building. Yep. And at times when he was just kind of talking, you could have heard a pin drop in the entire building because he had everyone's attention. It was it was like being in a musical church. And I was like kind of in the pit doing some like station things. And I was literally like looking up and I could see the beads of sweat off of him. But to see... Eight, 36,000 eyes fixated on him was yep. absolutely stunning and nothing I'd ever, it would be like the Pope showing up. It was, it was wonderful. I absolutely love what you just said. I have, in fact, I've given talks on the religious dimension of, of rock and roll. Uh, I remember what the last year I was in Milwaukee, a buddy of mine and my older daughter, Maggie, went to see... Uh, Peter Gabriel toured with a thing called WOMAD, the World of Music and Dance. And it was like a big touring group, lots of interesting uh, acts. And it was like, you know, like a festival that lasted one day. And I've always been a fanatic about getting good seats. So we went and we were sitting for at least an hour or two before the gates opened. And I said to my daughter and my buddy, I said, you know, guys, when I go to a concert, I think I feel the same thing that people who go to church feel when they go to church. It's sort of like a, you know, reverential and orgiastic and, you know, spiritually and aesthetically moving. And then we saw like a really great show PM Dawn who were two. I love uh, PM Dawn. Oh man. (laughs) I've never heard bass so low as when PM Dawn came out, but it was a, a crowded house from New Zealand Sheila Chandra did almost like an Indian rap thing from India. Uh, there was a Russian band. There were the Royal Drummers of Burundi. And uh, and uh, Peter Gabriel and his group came out and just blew people away. Uh, and uh, it was just one of those unforgettable nights that combined, you know, the communal moment when you're at a great concert and if they can actually be quiet so you hear a pin drop as opposed to shouting you know free bird or something like that uh that you that's the right attitude yeah uh and it's very rare to find that these days because i have a feeling that a lot of people go to concerts just because there was nothing else to do that night not because they saw it as uh uh you know a profound uh, spiritual and aesthetic uh, experience. I have a, I, I always end up sitting by those people. <laughs> I have a, I have two final questions because we could literally talk for hours. We can do a, a, I have so many other questions to ask, but two last ones. Sure. Um, have you ever seen somebody that you really liked? And are you? Yeah, have you ever seen somebody's music that you really liked and you're like, wow, that was a really underwhelming performance? And I'm not talking about like sound quality, wall of sludge, like they just weren't good performers. Oh, 
Well, it's hard to draw the line. I think one of the most disappointing concerts I ever saw was Yes. Okay. And their music, I don't know whether it was the sound system. I'm, I'm going against uh, the spirit here. But the, uh, the sound system just wasn't up to doing what they were going to do. And it was just terrible. But I think the most disappointing uh, was the, uh, the second time I saw Bob Dylan. Uh, it was at Bonnaroo. And he came out with a band. He never picked up a guitar. He played a keyboard. And his set selection was just pathetic. Uh, I mean, he played songs that I can't imagine anybody would have put on a top 50 list of songs they'd like to hear Bob Dylan do uh, at a concert. Uh, the most pleasantly surprised I ever was, the other side of the question, was, uh, again, at Bonnaroo, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Uh, I never really cared much about them, but they were on a stage I was at and, uh, and I watched and they absolutely blew me away. The camaraderie, the dedication, the friendship and the quality of the music. Fortunately for me, they did like a greatest hits concert. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I would have gone to hear them many more times had he not died. Uh, and like I said, it's not, I wouldn't have gone across the street to see them before, but since I was already there, uh, it was just a, a real eye opener to a guy who loved music and who lived a life dedicated to his music. That was, I was really, uh, I felt privileged to have seen that and had my, uh, opinion about him transformed. Um, are you still teaching? No, I retired, uh, in January. I was supposed to go to Croatia. Actually, I did go to, uh, not Croatia, but uh, Slovakia to do a Fulbright Fellowship. Uh, and so I was going to uh, teach an online course or two, but then that fell apart. So I retired. I got to Slovakia and a foot surgery that I had had failed and I had mm. to return home. But I had to return home just a couple weeks before the COVID craziness went wild. And I would have had a much harder time returning home. So... Uh, a failed surgery has never had a better turnout or a better uh, uh, eventuality than that. Really? Yeah. yeah. Um, that was my last question, but I'll just ask you on a personal level: How have you uh, have you managed the last eleven months of what we've been enduring? Especially somebody who who loves live music, and that was like one of the big things, and still is that people are desperately missing. I know. Well, I have uh, uh, hundreds of books. I've got a great TV and Netflix uh, subscription, and I've got a stereo that I don't even want to think about what it would cost if I had bought everything new. <laughs> so I have not had a problem at all other than not getting to see my children and granddaughter. Right, right. Uh, uh, you know, I've, I've only seen them a couple times. It's driving me nuts. Uh, so I've been, and, and people keep saying, boy, Russ, you probably don't mind the, uh, the, the pandemic at all, do you? Uh, I'm a, I'm a, I love to cook. And so my gal and I take turns cooking for each other. She's from what used to be Yugoslavia and has a great rep, uh, repertoire of Eastern European dishes. And I do all kinds of, uh, ethnic dishes and ordinary food. So, uh, I'm not losing weight, but I'm reading like a fiend going back and rereading all my favorite Japanese novelists and, uh, uh watching movie after movie and, uh, exercising inside on a bicycle machine. So I'm actually, uh, aside, again, aside from missing people, 
uh, I've been having a pretty easy time of it. Awesome. Um, well, I'm glad you're well. I, I, how do I correctly pronounce your last name? We just got Rise, right into rising. rising, the opposite of falling. Got it. Uh, well, Russ, this was Mr. Rising. This was awesome. Mary, uh, Mary gets a, uh, an extra slice of pizza for me for this uh, because <laughs> she's like, just let him tell stories. And these were great stories. And again, it's not that like all this music is is not my not my thing. But I I respect the hell out of all of this stuff and to hear you talk about it from the different decades. And what I'm yeah. most yeah. impressed with, and I think we had this connection, is you're not in a silo of just guitars or it seems like the only thing you did you don't like is dance music and that's totally fine like there was disco demolition night you were rooting them on but you blew me away when you said you really like the hard uh rap groups but you're you're right they they spoke uh to to serious causes that brought a lot of music forward many decades so thank you very much well you're welcome and i think their music was just really heavy and you know sometimes being really heavy is all it needs especially when it goes with lyrics like that. But Eric, you've done a great job. Uh, feel free to get in touch with me again anytime you want. And uh, I hope we get a chance to meet someday. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've, I've chalked it up. I, so uh, I do the radio show. I, I record that all ahead of time. And then we, we podcast every day. I used to host the morning show. I had another morning show on, on Kiss FM. And, you know, uh-huh. as things have evolved, it's like you've got to put out other content. So Instead of sitting here taking phone calls and requests like somebody would have done in 1996, I oh, record yeah. I record the podcast, and uh, I have lined up many people who I've been connected with. I have a lot of coffee things with people I've never met before, mm-hmm. but lots of great podcast episodes, and I hope I can put you on that list. Oh, absolutely. Let me just say one more thing. Sure. When I was in high school is when Underground FM sort of kicked in. Uh, and there was WABX out of Detroit, and there was an Ann Arbor uh, underground station, and that was the greatest eye opener for me because they played, you know, the the deep stuff that you, you never heard on AM radio. That's when AM and FM became two completely different worlds. Uh, and there was a guy named Doctor John the Night Tripper uh, on WABX, and uh, I would just sit there, you know, lie there with my headphones on all night. Uh, listening to stuff. And in those days, he quit on the air because they had played Layla three times in one week. <laughs> and, uh, to, you know, it, it's a great song, but he said, listen, three times in one week? In a week. We have all this other great music to listen to? He says, there's no excuse for that. Uh, so, you know, again, the Underground FM, CKLW, and lots of great friends and cousins who turned me on to music. I'd like to dedicate uh, all of my accomplishments in music studies to them thanks so much for the time this was delightful and uh we're certainly going to do it again all right man thanks a lot stay safe uh look forward to talking to you again thanks russ be well bye-bye you too